you're now under pressure. Under Pressure is a brief recurring podcast for busy clinicians, investigators, and trainees devoted to state-of-the-art prevention and control of blood pressure. We provide quick, lively, and accurate updates and reviews on important issues in hypertension diagnosis, management, and prognosis from our multidisciplinary team of experts. Our hosts this week are Jennifer Cluett, Clinical Director of the BIDMC Hypertension Center and Healthcare Associates and Certified Hypertension Specialist, and Stephen Jurashek, Research Director of the Center. We're joined this week by our special guest, Rosie Ferriman, primary care resident at BIDMC. Welcome to all of you. Great to be here, Ken. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. We have two great sessions this week. Jen will be talking about a case of postpartum hypertension, and Rosie will be discussing the seminal sprint trial. Jen, let's start with you. Our case this week begins as a 38-year-old woman who developed gestational hypertension at 36 weeks during her first pregnancy. She was started on labetalol, 200 milligrams twice daily, which provided good control of her blood pressure all the way up through her C-section at 38 weeks of gestation. By the third day after delivery, though, her blood pressure increased dramatically, and she eventually required treatment with 800 milligrams TID of labetalol, so a substantial increase, along with nifedipine and captopril. After discharge, she was referred to the BIDMC Hypertension Center for outpatient follow-up of her hypertension. So, Jen, let's start with some of the basic questions about gestational hypertension. What are the usual medications that we would consider safe for pregnancy, since those will be the ones that we'll likely see in the postpartum setting? Good questions, Ken. I'll focus here on outpatient treatment, as the inpatient treatment of labile or rapidly increasing blood pressure could be its own topic. The classic answer is methyl dopa because it has the most history and considered safe, but we don't use it a lot in clinical practice for a couple of reasons. Uh, First of all, it doesn't have a great impact on lowering blood pressure. And second of all, it's fairly sedating, so typically not used as much clinically now. Labetalol has both alpha and blocking activity, commonly used, uh, very commonly used as in our patient in the absence of underlying asthma because it does cause some bronchospasm. Just like in our patient, the most commonly used calcium channel blocker is nifedipine. But clinically, we find that uh, just as within our non-pregnant patients, the side effects from nifedipine can limit its utility or acceptance by patients. They tend to have more lower extremity edema. Uh, flushing is common um, and problematic for patients and then headaches as well. So amlodipine would be a good alternative to that, but there's less safety data for amlodipine. I do typically use it uh, more often than nifedipine in the postpartum setting, though, just because it's a little bit easier to take. Our patient was prescribed captopril uh, in the postpartum setting, which would certainly not be used in pregnant patients, but you can use both ARBs and ACE inhibitors in breastfeeding. As for other categories of medications, there's some potential concerns, uh, which might be theoretical about milk supply reduction with diuretics as a category of medications. But Anthony Ishak, our clinical pharmacist, recently brought a paper from hypertension published earlier this year by a group at UPenn that took a look at furosemide in days one to five postpartum. And it really showed an incredible improvement uh, for the rapidity at which the postpartum hypertension improved. My main concern for this patient when we saw her after delivery was the complexity of it. It added up to eight pills throughout the day, which might be manageable in an inpatient setting, but it's really challenging when you're home with a newborn, Ken. Thanks for that, Jen. It sounds like the pill burden is going to end up being a real issue for her. And I'd be curious to see how she ended up doing. We'll talk about that in a minute. One of the things I noted about this case, Jen, was 
the unusual trajectory. Uh, she seemed to have well-controlled blood pressure during pregnancy and then a sudden spike afterward, followed by, in part related to excellent care, um, some improvement in her blood pressure over time. What should we consider a typical trajectory of pregnancy-related hypertension? How does blood pressure change over the course of pregnancy and then after delivery? It really depends, Ken, on the underlying disorder. Um, we sort of lump these hypertension disorders of pregnancy into one category, but they're worth just reviewing them individually a little bit and because they have different definitions and, as a result, prognoses. And all of these conditions can happen in women who do not have pre-existing hypertension or in women who do, okay? So the definition of gestational hypertension would be new onset hypertension after 20 weeks of pregnancy. And um, that's defined as a systolic blood pressure over 140 or a diastolic over 90 without proteinuria or other lab or clinical findings of preeclampsia. Preeclampsia takes gestational hypertension and then adds on the features of proteinuria and then some lab findings like thrombocytopenia, acute renal function changes, abnormal LFTs, plus clinical symptoms of pulmonary edema or visual or cerebral symptoms. And then there's a category of severe preeclampsia, which is that clinical picture, but with blood pressures over 160 for systolic or 110 for diastolic. And then that transitions into eclampsia once you have a generalized seizure um, without any other context for the seizures. There's a variant of HELP, which is hemolysis, elevated liver enzymes, and low platelets that can have hypertension. Um, that's considered sort of a variant of the preeclampsia. It's important to remember that because pregnant women are, are often a group of previously healthy people, uh, even more modestly elevated blood pressures can actually represent a significant change from their baseline blood pressures. And so that's why it's this combination of clinical findings um, plus an absolute increase or change in the blood pressure. But back to your question, her, her trajectory is actually fairly typical. Uh, blood pressure tends to decrease in the first two days after delivery, but then the peak is somewhere between day three to six postpartum. And then in most women, it gradually normalizes. What strikes me about this is that in women who've had vaginal deliveries and who are home already at this time, they're much less likely to have their blood pressure monitored, and this may be missed entirely in that setting. Why this peak happens is multifactorial. It's probably related to sort of a loss in the usual vasodilation of pregnancy. So after delivery, you've got a compensatory vasoconstriction. There's hormonal changes, obviously. There's pain, sleep deprivation. Usually women are counseled not to use NSAIDs for postpartum pain. Uh, the recommendation is acetaminophen, but certainly NSAIDs can contribute to elevated blood pressure. Another important thing, because this trajectory can happen quite quickly, it's important to monitor the blood pressure closely, especially in patients who are on a number of medications like ours, because sometimes there is a very rapid return to normal blood pressure that can result in overtreatment for these women. Jen, now that her blood pressure is getting managed and she's under excellent care at the hypertension center, I suppose an important question for us as primary care docs would be, how much higher is her long-term hypertension risk now? What does all of this confer in terms of increased risk, either for hypertension or, or for cardiovascular disease going forward? And related to that, should we just be taking her blood pressure on a periodic basis, um, or does she need more systematic screening going forward than she otherwise would um, had she had normal blood pressure throughout pregnancy? 
So it's important, as you mentioned, as as PCPs to consider long-term risk, but there's also important short-term risk for her. These women are vulnerable to peripartum strokes um, in this setting. Uh, the hypertensive disorders of pregnancy are, are really bad actors, actually, uh, both immediately after birth, but long-term. Um, and they contribute to a lot of peripartum morbidity and mortality, even in the United States, or especially in the United States, if they aren't identified early and treated aggressively. And sometimes even if they are, about half of women with preeclampsia will remain hypertensive two to three months out and 10% transition to sustained hypertension. It's a fairly high uh, percentage. Preeclampsia is actually a widely recognized cardiovascular risk factor and is included in some of the risk calculators um, to predict overall cardiovascular risk. And it can approach the same magnitude of risk increase as tobacco smoking actually. So it's it's pretty significant. In addition, women who have a history of preeclampsia actually have a shortened average life expectancy. So this it really is an important uh, thing to understand and know as a primary care doctor who's taking care of these patients long after the postpartum setting. As you mentioned, uh, blood pressure should be monitored periodically. I, I don't know that there's formal recommendations to do it any more frequently than annually, uh, but they also should be screened for diabetes on an annual basis and all other modifiable cardiovascular risks should be identified and aggressively managed if possible. We haven't focused on this a whole lot here today, but I, I wanted to at least acknowledge or mention that there is a much higher incidence of these hypertensive disorders of pregnancy in women who have lower socioeconomic status and are Black and Latina women, and also women who are over age 35 or have higher BMIs to start. Jen, take us back to the case. What happened with your patient? So as I mentioned above, she actually had a fairly rapid improvement, although not normalization of her blood pressure. And we were able to rapidly titrate her off both the captopril and the labetalol. We did switch her to amlodipine over the nifedipine uh, just due to the side effects that she was experiencing. But she remained on this for up to six months. She's uh, about eight or nine months out now, and she gradually reduced the dose of amlodipine over three to four months, and she just stopped it about a month ago, and her blood pressures have remained within the normal range. Thanks for taking us through that case, Jen. Sounds like a really good outcome. Will she be considering another pregnancy, and should the experience of her first pregnancy limit that in any way? That is a fantastic question. Uh, and it's funny you should ask. Literally within the past couple of weeks, uh, she I suggested that she meet with one of our maternal fetal medicine specialists who has a lot of experience in following patients with this. Uh, there is a higher risk of another hypertensive disorder or pregnancy with subsequent pregnancies. And she is age above 35, which would impact those decisions. The way I frame it to patients, it should not prevent you from growing a family or considering additional pregnancies, but it is something that I think that absolutely should be closely monitored throughout the pregnancy with somebody who has some experience in this, like a maternal fetal medicine specialist. Thanks very much, Jen. We're now going to turn to our second part of our episode today, and we'll be discussing the seminal sprint trial with Rosie Ferramand. Rosie, again, welcome to Under Pressure. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. So Sprint was truly a game changer uh, for clinical practice and hypertension. And I think it's a great opportunity to review what it did and, and what it didn't show and how we might best use those results. And I'm delighted that we have Stephen Jurashek as well available to give us some context to the trial. Rosie, what was the research question that Sprint ultimately addressed? So the trial aimed to tell us whether a more intense systolic blood pressure 
less than 120 is associated with improved outcomes as compared to a more liberal standard target of less than 140. So basically in patients that we've already decided to start on medications for hypertension, what is the appropriate blood pressure target? It does not aim to tell us the appropriate blood pressure at which to start a medication. I think a really important aspect of SPRINT, and one that's been discussed a lot, is the population that was studied. Can you walk us through the entry criteria, the inclusion and exclusion criteria, and what the final population of SPRINT participants looked like? So the study included over 9,000 patients across over 100 clinical sites. In order to qualify, patients had to be 50 years of age or older, have systolic blood pressures in the 130 to 180 range, on or off antihypertensive treatment, and then they had to have at least one additional indicator of cardiovascular disease risk. Um, So these include things like chronic kidney disease, a prior MI, peripheral arterial disease, or Framingham risk score greater than 15%. But it notably excluded patients with a diagnosis of diabetes, prior stroke, or dementia. And the reason for this is because there were two previous trials that showed that intensive therapies in these groups did not yield improved outcomes as opposed to standard therapy. So given all that, the trial ended up including patients with an average age of 68 years old, 36% were female, 31% black, and 11% Hispanic. As you noted, Rosie, the primary goal of the trial was to test different blood pressure targets. So how well did did that ultimately succeed? Were the investigators able to get blood pressures at the targets and keep them there? And I suppose equally, how quickly did that occur and how many medications did it take to reach blood pressures at the targets that were proposed in the trial? Yeah, so they were able to meet the blood pressure targets of either less than 140 in the intervention group or less than 120 in the standard group pretty quickly, like within the first one or two clinic visits, so within weeks of starting the trial. The blood pressures were very tightly controlled per a very strict prescribing-de-prescribing algorithm to keep patients within the tight range of uh, just below 120 or just below 140. And it ended up being that the average number of meds that the intensive group was taking was around 2.7, and the standard group was around 1.8. So we're talking about one extra medication on average for the individuals in the the intensive uh, therapy target group. Correct. So, Rosie, tell us what the primary endpoint of the trial was and what the results were for that endpoint and for the important secondary endpoints. I think it's really important as we go through this to think both about what the investigators thought the most important uh, endpoint would be, but I suppose potentially the secondary ones that we think are equally important. So the primary endpoint that the investigators looked at was the development of first ACS, stroke, heart failure, or cardiovascular death. And then I think for us, the most important secondary endpoint they looked at was all-cause mortality. But taking a step back here, I think it's important to note that this trial was planned for a five-year target, but it was stopped short after just three years when an interim analysis demonstrated the uh, superiority of the intensive therapy compared to standard of care. And these results were first published in the New England Journal in 2015. And then more recently, the investigators released a final report, including a median of 3.3-ish years of post-trial observational data. 
And so looking at the initial analysis, the rates of primary endpoint in the intervention group were 5.2% versus in the standard group 6.8%, yielding a hazard ratio of 0.75, meaning that there was a 25% lower risk of the primary endpoint in the intensive group. And this held over the next three years when looking at the post-trial observational data such that there was a 1.77% per year incidence of primary endpoint in the intensive group and 2.4% per year in the standard group. And again, it was about a 25% lower risk of the primary endpoint in the intensive group. And then more importantly, looking maybe more importantly, looking at all-cause mortality, which includes kind of takes into account side effects that we might see. At follow-up, there was a 1.06% per year incidence of all-cause mortality in the intensive group versus 1.4% per year in the standard group, again yielding a hazard ratio of 0.75. So again, a 25% lower risk of all-cause mortality in the intensive treatment group. Stephen, um, I'm going to ask you to jump in here a little bit and talk about that early closure. How should we think about that and what, what, why might, what, what might we expect that to have done to the benefit that was observed? Well, that's a great question. And, you know, um, stopping a trial early is, is a very careful and um, uh, important decision and has a lot of implications. And it wasn't uh, undertaken lightly. I think in this particular case, you know, there's not a lot of reasons we, you, you look to to stop trials early. But in this particular case, the separation uh, in all-cause mortality, one of the secondary endpoints, was uh, quite profound in Sprint and, and really uh, gave the, at least the Data Safety Monitoring Board pause as to whether or not to continue to uh, allow and not report, you know, allow, allow folks to be uh, treated to standard goal and not, not report the findings to the, the greater population uh, or, or public. And I think so, you know, there are often concerns that with early stopping, you kind of accentuate whatever the observation was. So whether that's a harm or a benefit, usually uh, we're stopping because we see a, a clear uh, difference in outcome, but that can be uh, ascribed to both the control or intervention. Um, and I think uh, that is always a concern that maybe the uh, observed difference uh, would actually be less impressive if we allowed things to continue in its pre-planned course. Uh, nevertheless, uh, for a secondary endpoint such as all-cause mortality, you know, these are actual deaths. It's very difficult to misclassify. I think it's something that confers an obligation to safety monitoring boards to act upon, and as they rightly did in this particular case. Thanks for that, Stephen. Um, I think really important points you've made. So, Rosie and Stephen, let's turn to our takeaway message from the SPRINT trial. It ultimately resulted in changes in guidelines, but in your opinion, was the evidence strong enough to do that? Um, how should we view the results of SPRINT uh, for our actual clinical practice? So I think the evidence was very strong. And as primary care clinicians, there are very few interventions that we know of that can reduce subsequent mortality by 25% potentially. And so I think that it's reasonable and, and advised based on the SPRINT trial that if a patient can tolerate it, we should be targeting blood pressures of less than 120 in those that we decide to start on treatment. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, you know, the I think the critiques of Sprint include primarily center on generalizability, and um, and that's always a very important point with clinical trials. But when we think about the question of generalizability and, and just building off of Rosie's point about uh, just how many things are there that if you treat 90 people, you're going to save a life. You know, there's 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 not a lot out there uh, in that realm. And 
when you think about, well, uh, folks who weren't included in Sprint, there's there's quite a few uh, characteristics that weren't included. You also have to consider, well, why would their physiology be different? You know, why would somebody with particular condition who might have been excluded from Sprint, why would blood pressure lowering affect them differently? And I think we need to weigh that and the lack of evidence or for or for against that uh, in terms of when we decide to apply Sprint or not apply Sprint to specific patients. And overall, I'd say that the impressive results from the Sprint study are a strong base for us to, to uh, be more aggressive or more proactive in terms of reducing people's blood pressure uh, for both cardiovascular disease uh, prevention, event prevention, but also for fatal outcomes as well. To wrap up, let's recap our key hypertension highlights for the week. Jen? I think this case really highlighted the importance of monitoring blood pressure in those vulnerable days of three to five after delivery, and especially highlights the importance of having the opportunity to do home blood pressure monitoring for women who may be outside the hospital setting in that time frame. That's great. Um, Rosie, let's turn it next to you. So for me, a big takeaway from Sprint is that, you know, as an early clinician, early in my career at this point, when I see patients with hypertension with systolic blood pressures in the 130s, you know, earlier in the year, I was I was pretty happy with that. But Sprint kind of makes me take a step back and say, no, I should be trying to pursue more aggressive treatment in these patients to try to prevent some of the longer term conf- consequences of hypertension. Stephen? Yeah. And I just like to underscore what Rosie said. I think uh, Sprint really uh, should give us pause about um, uh, how permissive we are with uh, folks' blood pressure. And you know, it's it's always sobering to reread that number needed to treat 90 um, in order to uh, prevent a death, a fatal event. And so when we think about, you know, in our clinics, uh, maybe the hundreds or thousands, the fact that 50% of the U.S. population has uncontrolled blood pressure, uh, we, we should really be galvanized. Uh, this study should galvanize us to try to identify those people with a goal for uh, better blood pressure control. Thanks for listening to another edition of Under Pressure the brief recurring podcast devoted to state-of-the-art prevention and control of blood pressure. For Jennifer Cluett, Rosie Ferrimand, and Stephen Jurashak, I'm Ken Mukamal, and you've been Under Pressure.